Amen. Good morning once again and happy Easter. Uh, I'm not going to lie, I was talking to Casey this morning and last night I, I, I had a hard time getting to sleep. I was just excited about today. It kind of felt like Christmas Eve when I was a kid, you know, just the excitement of Easter morning with my church. And it is a glorious opportunity that we have, church. You know, the, the truth is the resurrection of Jesus is no more true today than it was yesterday. But the fact is, it really is special. When God's people come together and we herald and hold this truth high that Christ is risen from the grave. And we are going to celebrate what that means for us today. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 1. No worries if you don't have your copy with you. We will have the text up on the screens as well. As you're turning there, I'll say this. Most of us love a good rescue story. A fairly recent one was about a, a group of soccer players, a soccer team, and their coaches that were trapped in a cave in northern Thailand. Uh, you probably heard about that. It, it, the, the news went viral around the globe, people concerned about the soccer team. And as they're trapped in this cave that they were exploring, there's questions like, hey, do they have air? Do they have water? Do they have food? And there was concern, are, are we going to be able to rescue them? Are we going to be able to save them? And we know the end of that story. Thankfully, it was a good end. Uh, all of them were brought home, and they were rescued indeed. And if you think about it, all rescue stories have a couple of things in common. On one hand, there's someone that's in dire need, incapable of delivering themselves, incapable of freeing themselves from whatever's holding them down. And on the other hand, there's a person or a group of people that come up with a plan, and they work this plan to rescue this person, to bring them home. Believe it or not, that's actually what we're going to be talking about today, because the Bible from cover to cover, is actually one big rescue story. So we've got a lot of people here this morning, and I'm sure if you went around the room and started asking some questions, you would see pretty quickly, we're all a little different. Some of you are from just down the road. Some of you are from out of state, maybe up north or Midwest, or maybe from another part of the world. Uh, maybe we've got various religious backgrounds. Maybe some of you grew up Baptist, or maybe some of you grew up Catholic, or Lutheran, or Methodist, or uh, Pentecostal. And if you're here, I'm sure we're going to hear from you at some point. And hey, you're welcome here at Downtown Church. But I'll say this. Here's the point. Regardless of how you were brought up, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of Whatever differences we might have, there is one thing that we all have in common. We all need rescue. Every one of us. We all need rescue. The Bible, this book, it's more than just a book written by men. It's actually the authoritative, inerrant, meaning no errors, inspired, meaning from God, word of God. And if you go back to the start of the scriptures in the book of Genesis, you'll see shortly after creating the heavens and the earth and causing vegetation to sprout and waters to spread and light to form, God makes man. 
The first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did something that had never happened before with mankind. They sinned against God. They heard very clearly what God wanted of them, but they chose to rebel against God. And when they did that, mankind experienced a great loss. And that loss was passed down from one generation to the next. Adam and Eve's kids, their kids, their kids, all the way down to you and me, our kids, our grandkids, and so forth. Here's the great loss according to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 up on the screens. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah was writing those words to a specific group of people. But make no mistake. You and I can read that verse and we can point the finger at us. Because our sins, our iniquities have made a separation between God and us. And hear me clearly. If we are separated from God, that means that he's not with us and we can't get to him. Not on our own. In comes the need for a great rescue story. And that is what we're going to celebrate today. Much like that soccer team that was rescued, you and I need to be rescued. So with that being said, let's go to God's word together. If you're new here at Downtown Church, we have a tradition where we stand for the initial reading of the holy word of God. So if you would and are able, stand at this time. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 reads... Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I'd like to share with you another translation of verses 3 and 4. Uh, I just read from the ESV, which is the English Standard Version. But check out this translation from the NIV, the New International Version, which reads, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, please hear this. Jesus came to rescue you. He did. Jesus came to rescue you. And when I say you, I don't just mean in like some general swath sense. What I mean, he came to rescue you. You personally, each of us. He came to rescue us on a very personal and intimate level. Before we begin to walk through God's 
plan, this rescue plan that we see throughout the scriptures. Be comforted. This was actually a plan that God started a long time ago. In fact, check out this text from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. It says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Who's Peter talking about here? Well, he's talking about Jesus. If you read the verses right above that, he's clearly talking about Jesus. And so here's what this means. Peter is saying before the creation of the world. Some translations say before the foundations of the world were ever laid. Christ was chosen. He was chosen to be our rescuer. And then as you walk through the story of the Bible, you see God's rescue plan beginning to unfold in the scriptures. Which brings us to our first point for this morning. Number one, Jesus entered our world on Christmas. Jesus entered our world on Christmas. All right, so in order for God's plan to work, it was going to require that Jesus, God's own son, come into this world and that he takes on flesh like you and I have today. Here's what the Apostle Paul had to say about this. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's what Paul is teaching us about Jesus here. Jesus was equal with God. He was with God. And he didn't have to let go of that equality with God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he let go. And then he came down and he emptied himself and he took on human form, the form of a servant, not the form of what he was, a part of the Trinity right there with God. He came down for us. And you might be thinking, why? Why is that part of the plan so important? In the Old Testament, God gave his, uh, his people a series of commands that are referred to as God's law. And here's the thing about God's law. If mankind, if any man, woman, boy, or girl was capable of living and keeping every part of God's law, then they would prove themselves to be good. They would prove themselves to be righteous and deserving to be with God forever. But here's what history has proven, church. Mankind can't keep God's law. We're incapable of doing that. If you look in the Old Testament, God's covenant people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, <laughs> it's kind of comical, but at the same time, it's really a picture of us too. They, on one day, they're worshiping God and they're following God and praise God, hallelujah, all that. And then the next day, they're, they're worshiping a golden calf. They just totally mess it up. They, they sin against God in all these countless ways, grumbling against God, even though God has been so good to them. You go to the New Testament, there's a, a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. Maybe you've heard of them. 
and these Pharisees, really what they fixed their lives on, their goal was to be righteous, to be good. And they prided themselves on thinking, oh, yes, I uphold God's law perfectly. And that's the image that they portrayed. But you know what Jesus said about those Pharisees? He, he called them a brood of vipers. That's not a compliment. He also called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked squeaky clean, but on the inside, they smelled like death. We are incapable of upholding God's righteous requirements. The Apostle Paul once said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, my wife's grandmother, we called her Khaki. Uh, she's no longer with us, and I think I may have shared this with y'all before, but I just love it. Whenever the grandkids, toddlers, would be playing on the floor with toys and blocks and stuff, and one of them reaches over and takes the block from the other, and then the other one starts crying and boohooing, she'd sit there in her chair and she'd shake her head and look at us and say, little sinners. <laughs> it, it's just in us, Right? And here's the thing, that sin causes separation between holy God and us, sinful man. So here's what God did for us. Let's consider this together. God came to us because we couldn't get to him. That's what he did. God came to us because we could not get to him. And that's no small thing, right? God came to us. And here's how he did that. See if you recognize this story. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Church, this is what Christmas is all about. At Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel is Jesus. He did what we could not do. Jesus came down in the form of man, emptying himself, emptying himself of glory, emptying himself of majesty, coming in a very lowly form, was laid in a manger of a barn, basically, and then he proceeds to live a sinless life. He fulfills every part of God's law, every righteous requirement in the law of God, Jesus met completely. But the mission wasn't over. So yes, Jesus entered our world on Christmas. Our second point for today, number two, Jesus paid our debt on Good Friday. So the Friday before Easter is often called Good Friday. And if you're a teenager, you might be thinking, well, that's because I get out of school. But that's, that's, not, that's not the point, okay? Good for you. But that's not why it's called Good Friday. What is really good for us, church, was actually really horrible for Jesus. Man could not get to God, but God could forge a path for us. He could offer a way for us to come to him. 
But in order for that to happen, Jesus would have to lay down his very own life here in this world, here in this life, in human form like you and I share today. But before Jesus did that, before Jesus forged that path, he had to endure a lot of pain and a lot of suffering along the way. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, there's a vivid, detailed account of what Christ endured for you and for me leading up to the cross. Jesus was wrongfully declared guilty, even though he wasn't. He was arrested. He was bound. He was tied to a post. And then they began to torture him. Roman soldiers would take this device called a cat of nine tails, had a small wooden handle with several leather straps flowing from the end of it. And at the end of these leather straps was sharp uh, pieces of bone and pottery and glass and metallic substances, basically anything that can inflict damage. And what, what happened to Jesus was 39 times, 39 lashes, soldiers would take turns whipping the back of Jesus, who was stripped naked at this point. And then all of that would latch onto the flesh of Jesus and pull it off every time, 39 times. Then these Roman soldiers wanted to have some fun. Oh, this is that king of the Jews. Well, he needs a crown. So they proceeded to take thorns and twist them together. The thorns would have been two to three inches long. And as Cason mentioned earlier, they, didn't, they did not just place the crown on his head. They drove it into his skull. All along the way, people are spitting on him, spitting in his face. Huge insult. They're beating him. They're plucking his beard they're jeering at him. Just such shame. Such reproach. And then he was forced to carry his own cross as far as he humanly could because he was in human form. And by the way, all of that happened just before 9 a.m. Then the day continues. By 9 a.m., Jesus is nailed to the cross and then he's hung on the cross but the nails are going not just through his hands and his feet, it's through his wrist and his ankles that are crossed. And Jesus is gasping for air. The pain would have been absolutely excruciating. And so every time Jesus went to take a breath, he had to pull up on the nails with his arms. He had to push down on his feet on the nails. And every time he did, it felt like lightning going through his body. And he feels like he's suffocating for hours. At noon, the gospel accounts reveal that the whole earth went dark. It was as if nature was bearing witness to the fact that this was a moment like none other. Emmanuel was suffering. Emmanuel was dying. A moment like none other in all of history. And as Jesus hung on that cross, gasping for air, the Bible teaches us the sins of the whole world, your sins, my sins, past, present, and future, were placed on Christ. And as he's hanging on that cross, the sins of the world are put on him. 
And when that happens, holy God, God the Father, has to turn his face away from his own son. Because now he who knew no sin is sin. And the Father turns his face away. And in that moment, Jesus felt the disconnect. He felt the separation for the first time ever. And so Jesus, hanging on the cross, gasping for air, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A very sacred moment in all of history where Jesus is crying out to his father, where did you go? When that happened, it was a very solemn moment for Jesus, a very, very sad moment for Jesus. And there's a lot of things that we could talk about what, about what happened on that cross, but I do want to share with you three specific truths that the Apostle Paul mentions right here in this letter about what happened on that Good Friday. The first thing that we see is the death of Christ was voluntary. It was voluntary. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. Okay, we need to understand this church. When Jesus died, he didn't just die because he was hanging on the cross. He gave himself. John's Gospel, chapter 19, says that he gave up his spirit. Keep in mind, at any point, Jesus could have spoken a word and multitudes, hosts of angels could have come and wiped out mankind, wiped out everyone crucifying him, wiped out everyone mocking him and that beat him and that crucified him and rescued him. But he did not do that. He stayed on the cross. He gave himself. Paul explains why in the next phrase of this verse. And we learn that the death of Christ was vicarious. And what that means is Jesus took on a punishment that was not his own. He bore our burdens at Calvary as we sing. Check out this verse. Verse 4 again. Who gave himself for our sins. Keep in mind, Jesus didn't die for his sins because he wasn't a sinner. He died for your sins. He died for my sins, past, present, and future. He died for our sins. We also learn that the death of Christ was victorious. Look what it says here in verse 4, again, of Galatians 1. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us or to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So track with me on the timeline. 9 a.m., Jesus is hung on the cross. Noon, sins of the world on Jesus. The whole world goes dark. 3 p.m. rolls around. And the Bible says that as Jesus is hanging on the cross at 3 p.m., Jesus says a word. He says, to tell us die. Which means it is finished. Which sounds like an incomplete thought. Like, what did Jesus finish? What had Jesus 
completed. If you watched our Good Friday online experience on Friday night, uh, Pastor Allen shared with us about what would happen in the Old Testament as they were preparing the lamb for sacrifice for the sins of God's people. So they would actually take the lamb, the supposed spotless lamb, outside of the city, take it to the special place where the priest would look the lamb over for three days. And for three days, they're looking for anything wrong with this lamb. A birthmark, a scratch, a scab, anything. And if they found one spot, if they found one blemish, the sacrifice was disqualified. And then the search began again for the spotless lamb. Jesus comes along. Jesus lives three decades. And then for three years... Jesus is scrutinized. His public earthly ministry, the miracles, the the teachings, his character. They're they're trying to catch him doing something wrong. But you know what they found? There was no fault in this man. Not one. Because he was spotless. So when Jesus spoke that word on the cross in his final moments, and he says, to telestai, he's saying it's done. It's finished. The sacrificial system is done. I have fulfilled the law of God. I am the spotless lamb of God. And I have paid for your sins. In church, we can hear that today and know that is for us as well. Every sin. Every sin. Many of us here probably grew up singing an old hymn. Jesus paid it all. He did. Jesus paid it all. All of your sin, even that deep, dark stuff that you don't want anybody to know about, Jesus paid for that. All to him we owe. Sin had left this crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That's not just a memorable tune, that that is a celebration of truth. May we, church, behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Amen. Jesus entered our world on Christmas. He paid our debt on Good Friday, but the plan was not done. Number three, Jesus walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday. So after Jesus gave up his spirit and died on the cross, he was buried in a rich man's tomb named Joseph of Arimathea. And it's actually important that it was a rich man's tomb because not everyone had this kind of tomb. Only the wealthy had this kind of tomb. And this particular tomb had a large stone that would be rolled in front of the tomb to seal off that tomb. It was much like probably the pictures you and I have grown up seeing uh, seeing in the paintings where the, the stone is large, and it was. It would have been four to six feet tall. In diameter. And what they would do is they would actually dig a a, a little trench, a groove that was about the width of the stone. It was one feet thick. And so it would make this divot down in front of the entrance to the tomb. And so a few guys could roll this large stone, which by the way weighed between one and two tons. If you're not a mathematician, that's between two and four thousand pounds. 
Okay? That's a lot. That's a lot of rock. And so these guys could move this rock into place to seal off the tomb. But once it fell into that divot, it was very hard to move it from there. It would take a lot of guys to move it out of its spot. So imagine Mary Magdalene's surprise when she arrives to the tomb and finds this. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that Mary Magdalene is, is taking all of this in. She's like, what happened? And she gets to the tomb, and she's confronted by angels. These ladies that were with her were confronted by angels. And they say, hey, go tell the disciples. The Bible doesn't necessarily say this, but I'm imagining there was some haste in her step. There was some hustle in the muscle there, okay? She was moving to get the message to the disciples. And so she gets there. She tells them, you're not going to believe this. But the stone's gone. Jesus is gone. I saw angels. It was weird. And then Peter and John take off running. Literally. The Bible says they were running. And they run to the tomb, and they immediately start playing detective. Look at John 20, verses 5 through 7. And stooping to look in... He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed." Okay, so Peter and John rush to the tomb. They got to see it for themselves. And when they get inside the tomb, they first notice the linen cloths, which would have been wrapped around the body of Jesus. Only there's no body in the linen cloths. And then they see the cloth that would have been placed on Jesus' face and head as he was lying down dead. Only the cloth wasn't tossed to the side like a grave robber had been in there. No, it was folded neatly and set aside. When these men, these followers of Jesus saw this, the stone rolled away, the linen cloths, the, the cloth for the face and head, they believed. They believed that Jesus is alive. He was risen from the dead. Paul, the apostle, wrote several letters, and in one of those letters, he wrote to the church at Corinth. And in this letter to the church at Corinth, he, he reveals the significance of this resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at this together. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 reads, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul draws some logical conclusions here. He's saying, okay, if God's rescue plan was that step one, Jesus comes to us, done, got it, check. Step two, Jesus pays for the sins, got it, check. But then you get to step 
3. In order for this rescue plan to work, church, in order for us to get to him, he's got to defeat death. He has to. There's no other way for us to get to him unless death is defeated. If we are going to have eternal life, he's got to be eternal first. Which is why the resurrection is so important. If death can defeat Jesus, church, there's no gospel. If the grave would be the end of Jesus, then Paul's conclusion is correct. As he says here, Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Meaning we have wasted our lives. We have wasted our generosity. We have wasted our faithfulness to this God if Jesus is dead. Big if. The disciples, the apostles, they devoted themselves to to getting this message out. He's alive. Literally poured their lives into getting this message out, into making disciples so much so, church, that one by one, they paid the ultimate price to get that message out. They literally laid down their lives To tell people about Jesus. All of them were killed. Died a martyr's death minus John. All of them. Let me ask you a question. Put yourself in those disciples' shoes. Let's say hypothetically that Jesus had not risen from the dead. And you're in on this coup. You're in on this hatched plan. Okay, we're going to hide Jesus' body and we're going to keep spreading this message to keep this Jesus thing. we got a good thing going, guys. Uh, Let me ask you a question. If you're in their shoes, would you be willing to lay down your life to spread a lie? I wouldn't. And it wasn't just one man. It was all of them. They all laid down their lives. Why? Because it is fact. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And you know what? One day every knee will bow, and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Praise God. The rescue mission worked. We are sinners. Our sin does separate us. From God. But Jesus paid it all, every bit of it, completely fulfilled the law on our behalf. And the Bible says this if you will repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you will be rescued. I don't know the state of your soul, but I know God does. I would urge you, urge you, regardless of the state of your soul, respond. Respond to that message. If you have made that profession and that confession of faith in your life, praise God, hold fast to that gospel. Don't let it go. Live by the power of that gospel. But if you have not, if you have not confessed Lord Jesus, I give you everything. I say this with the utmost sincerity and love. You need rescue. 
today, not tomorrow, not next year, not when you get your life together. That doesn't ever happen, by the way. You need Jesus today, right now. I would urge you to respond to the gospel of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to have the band come down. And we're going to open up the front, much like an altar. You're welcome to come to these benches. You're welcome to come down front here. And maybe you just want to come down and give thanks. Maybe you just want to praise God and say thank you. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the resurrection. That's totally appropriate. But we're also going to be down front. And if today you realize I am in need of rescue, may today be the day of salvation for you. And we would love nothing more than to pray with you as you begin to follow Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes at this time. Once again, regardless of the state of your soul, saved or lost, may we respond to the authoritative word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for sending Christ to this earth on our behalf. Not because we are deserving of that at all. Because we're not. But just because of your sheer goodness and mercy and grace. Lord, I want to lift up those that are present here with us this morning. For the followers of Jesus those who have been sealed with your promised Holy Spirit, may you encourage their hearts. Regardless of what's going on in their life, regardless of what's around the bend for them, remind them that you will never leave them nor forsake them, and they will be with you forever. But Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, if there is anyone here who needs to confess, Jesus is Lord, he is my Lord. Lord, I pray that you would prompt their spirit, convict them of the sin in their life and their need for a Savior. Be honored and glorified in how we respond to your word this morning. It's in your holy and precious name that we